Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. I'm excited for today's episode. I've even dressed for the occasion. You did. I dressed for Jurassic Park and you dressed for today. <laughs> I am wearing a shirt that says, talk to me, Goose. <laughs> I love it. Where did you find that? We did a little visit to Brown County over the weekend and in one of the little shops here sat this t-shirt and I was like, well, I have oh, to buy that. that's perfect. Of course I do. So I'm sure you've already guessed, guys, but we are they talking because about... Because title. <laughs> we are talking about... Top Gun. Top, Top Gun. Gun. Yes, I'm so excited. But specifically, we're going to have a little bit of an angle. Okay. Because our theme for the month is back to school. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the movies, of course, both the original a little bit and a lot about Top Gun Maverick. But we're also going to hit on that angle of the actual flight school. Yes. Which is very interesting. Like, I found out so much that I didn't know. I am very interested to hear about it. We kind of snuck it into our back to school. It's like, well, <laughs> Top Gun is a school. That's right. And once you could dig into it... It really is. Like, Uh it's very schoolish. So just, you know, about, like, fighter jets and all kinds of really important skilled (laughs) stuff. So let's start by talking about our own general personal associations with the movie. Tell me about your your experience with the first Top Gun movie and then also Top Gun Maverick. Well, I thought that I had never seen the first one. Mm -hmm. So Brian and I, in preparation for the new one coming out, and it was getting so much positive reviews that we watched it. And then I randomly, you know how Facebook has memories come up, Mm -hmm. and I had taken a survey like 10 years ago where I filled out movies I had seen and I checked that I had seen Top Gun. I don't know if I was lying 10 years ago or if I forgot, (laughs) but I enjoyed it, but I didn't get the nostalgia because I didn't see it Mm -hmm. in real time. But Top Gun Maverick, I thought was phenomenal. Yes. I thought that was a very well written movie. It Mm -hmm. had all the elements and it was a very true sequel. Yes. It was an actual continuation of the original story in a in a very amazing way. Yeah. I did see the original and loved it. I had the nostalgia factor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember thinking it was an amazing movie because it had everything. Mm-hmm. It had a unique premise. It mm-hmm. was something different. It had all the emotional feelings. Mm-hmm. It had all the action and the mm-hmm. excitement. It had these actors who at the time, I remember thinking, were very handsome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Tom Cruise was making the nicest way I could say it is moon pie eyes at that girl. Yes. For most of the movie, I was like, oh my gosh, they have got to get together. He has got to quit looking at her like that. <laughs> well, and that was the thing because they took so many of the elements that you did love about the first movie uh-huh. and they put it into this mm-hmm. new Top Gun Maverick. I thought it was wonderful too. We've seen it twice. Me too. And I think I liked it more, loved it more the second time than I did the first. Me too. Yeah, the second time I saw it, I was at a theater with Brian and his daughter and her husband and the seats we had were way too close to the screen Mm -hmm. so it was like looking up their noses and stuff but the cutest part about it was that there was a young man on I assume a date next to me and it was one of those really cool theaters where you can recline and I had a little blanket I took my shoes off I was like (laughs) I already know what's gonna happen I'm settling settling I am settling in and he came in 
then he had his shoes on at first, but then as the show progressed, he kicked his shoes off, he reclined his chair, and then at the certain parts, it's at first he wasn't that interested because he kept getting up and leaving. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, dude, you're missing the cool stuff. Yeah. So I'm in, I'm invested in this kid's enjoyment of this show. And then when it gets to like the mission, he literally puts his arms in the air and he's like, yeah. <laughs> and he was invested from that point on. So it was cool seeing his reaction. And then on the other side of me, Brian is just having this emotional reaction to seeing this stuff. And just to throw this in there, I remember you had mentioned to me just in casual conversation that you thought one of the other reasons why Brian really related to it was because oh, yeah. he had a background in the military, right? That's correct. Yes. He was in the Navy for eight years. And he said that he actually, the there's a scene which I guess we should say spoilers for this whole thing, right? Let's say it. Yeah. So if you didn't figure that out, spoilers for the whole thing. But there's a scene where Tom Cruise is standing on an elevator that lifts him into Mm -hmm. the air. And Brian said that when that happened, it took him back to when he actually stood on one of those kind of elevators. And he remembers taking a picture of like the sun setting and from that kind of perspective. So it really was taking him back to a time where he was out there on the sea. Yeah, he could really relate to Mm -hmm, that. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Well, in case there is anyone who has not seen this movie, here's a summary, a very brief summary from a CNN article. They said simply, Maverick returns to teach a new set of pilots how to take on an impossible mission. It's actually pretty succinct, but but accurate. Rotten Tomatoes had a summary that gave a little more detail, so I'll read theirs. After more than 30 years of service as one of the Navy's top aviators, Pete Maverick Mitchell, played by Tom Cruise, is where he belongs, pushing the envelope as a courageous test pilot and dodging the advancement in rank that would ground him. Mm. When he finds himself training a detachment of Top Gun graduates, For a specialized mission, the likes of which no living pilot has ever seen, Maverick encounters Lieutenant Bradley Bradshaw, played by Miles Teller, whose call sign is Rooster, and he is the son of Maverick's late friend and radar intercept officer, Lieutenant Nick Bradshaw, a.k.a. Goose. Facing an uncertain future and confronting the ghost of his past, Maverick is drawn into a confrontation with his own deepest fears, culminating in a mission that demands the ultimate sacrifice from those who will be chosen to fly it. Mm, very. That's a really good summary. I thought so too. It's funny because editorial comment, IMDB, I really appreciate you. I pull, you know, a lot of great information there, but I had trouble finding a good summary on mm-hmm. IMDB this time and Rotten Tomatoes had nailed it. it. Yeah. I would say with the CNN one, they said that he returns. He was sent back. True. Returns gives the indication that he chose to go back, but he was he was assigned. Mm-hmm. And they said this is not this is not a suggestion. You're going back. <laughs> this yeah. is not a suggestion. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and also, you kind of clarified something for me. You, one of the sentences you just said is he's he's not getting promoted because it would ground him. I was I wondered what they talked about when they said to him, "You should be a higher rank than you are. Why aren't you?" And he kind of gave a coy little answer. So is that the answer? If he was a higher rank, he wouldn't get to fly. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that either until this said this the way I interpreted it from the movie was he continued to be the wild card oh. he continued he was his own worst enemy okay like he he would continually do things mm-hmm. that would keep them from promoting him mm, okay yeah but maybe this is the second reason I like that so just a little background about the new movie it was filmed back in 2018 and 2019 but I think everybody knows of course it was delayed due to the pandemic 
finally opened on Memorial Day weekend of 2022. And this is cool. By the end of June, it had already crossed the $1 billion mark at the worldwide box office, according to Paramount. I saw something on uh, Screen Rant that I think it was Screen Rant. Yeah, that's the only two videos I watched where they talked about that the reason it was not released on streaming is because of Tom Cruise. Mm. Because he said, we are not going to go to all this trouble to film with IMAX cameras and then not release at the theater. So he was the one that mainly said, we're waiting until everything opens back up because this has to be seen in the theater. I think that was a a brilliant decision. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you also make a point that we should just go ahead and acknowledge based on everything that I've read and and researched. Tom Cruise was not just an actor in this movie. He was instrumental in everything. I believe he was he was a producer. I should have looked that up. But he made so many decisions Mm -hmm. and, you know, correct decisions. Yes. And definitely was instrumental in the direction that it took. But back to this point about the $1 billion mark with their um, box office. This is super huge. It's the first time in Tom Cruise's career that he's achieved that, that one of his films has achieved that. It's also the second highest grossing film in Paramount's history. The only one that beat it was 1997's Titanic. Ah. And they said this was actually even a bigger deal because we're in the pandemic era. Mm -hmm. The only other movie in the pandemic era that has crossed that $1 billion mark is Spider-Man No Way Home. Mm. And they said... Another thing that, that kind of made this stand out was they feel that the target audience for Top Gun Maverick is people over 35. Yeah, who have seen, probably seen the original. Right. And they said that that demographic is actually probably more reluctant to return to theaters. They're not as big mm. of a theater goer mm-hmm. type crowd as maybe the younger audience would be. So the fact that they crossed the $1 billion mark with that target yeah. audience might even be a bigger deal. But... I'm going to say, what? you just gave an example of this fella who was... You the said, young man? Young, mm-hmm. uh, he was in his 20s, definitely. Low 20s. Mm-hmm. My son is below 25. I know he and his friends have all seen it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that this movie did appeal to people below 35 in yeah. probably large numbers. I would say so. Yeah, I think it's very universal in its appeal. It's just the perfect movie to come back. Absolutely. And they said that not only did it have great word of mouth, but people are seeing it. We've, we've Both of us have seen mm-hmm. it more than once. Mm-hmm. We've paid you know, yep, the ticket price more than once. Yeah. And it has amazing reviews. I looked this up just last night to double check that the numbers had not changed. Yeah. It still has 99% on Rotten Tomatoes for the audience response. Yeah. And the critical response is at 97%. It's a great story. And I think that we've talked about this so much on this show. Why do things endure? And I think Top Gun Maverick is going to endure and perhaps eclipse the first one because of the story mm-hmm. and the characters and the way that they wrote this. It's just, it's perfectly written. I really think so. I, th- I thought it was very, very well done. And, and actually, just spoiler alert, <laughs> in a different way, that's one of the things that I'm hoping we're going to talk about during our armchair oh, okay. a segment is just exactly what made it such a strong sequel. You know, why was it so powerful? One thing, obviously, is the fact that people have waited 36 years for it. Like, <laughs> yes. I mean, how many times yes. in movie history do you have a very, very popular movie where they've waited from 1986 to 2022? Like, right. I mean, 36 years. Yeah, I think the only comparison right now... But but it's not quite a comparison as the Jurassic Park, you know, that came out in 1993. And then the final film just came out a few a few weeks ago around the same time as Maverick. But it was it had characters from the first one, but it wasn't exactly a sequel. So I would think that's the only real comparison right now. Wouldn't mm. you? There was also there was three films that were made with Ethan Hawke. And I don't remember the young woman's name, but they made three films that were 10 years apart. It's like before sunrise, after sunrise or 
something mm-hmm. like something around there. But those were planned. Those were planned. That was yeah. strategic. Mm-hmm. 10 years is still very different from 36. That's true. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into the actual school, you know, the Top Gun school. But right. I thought we'd give a little bit more background first about Top Gun Maverick and how the military was involved with the film. Okay. Because I think this all kind of ties together. So they obviously backed the original Top Gun movie and they also did back this sequel. Mm-hmm. And of course, a big reason for that was because it's great PR for the Navy. Yeah. One Navy man who did end up working with the the movie producers of Top Gun Maverick as kind of a liaison said that he hopes Top Gun Maverick will do for the current generation what the original movie did for his push people to enlist Mm. the original top gun from 1986 according to research helped boost navy recruitment by around eight percent which was a significant increase Mm -hmm. so i'm going to talk about two different ways the military helped with this new movie now the first way they helped was they did actually supply some locations and even some of the planes some of the jets so for example in terms of locations you will see sometimes that the cast is talking in actual ready rooms that are used by the Navy Mm. and they take off from the USS Theodore Roosevelt aircraft carrier which Mm -hmm. of course is an actual you know Navy aircraft carrier so Mm -hmm. so some of the locations are real but I think the more impressive part at least to me is the fact that they got to use these actual jets yes did you know I'm gonna give you a little did you know that in according to the video I watched from Screen Rant Mm -hmm. that Tom Cruise is the first actor to take off and land from a US Navy aircraft. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. And he's also the first one to do a low flying sequence because you have to do, you have to get special clearance for that. Very and cool. And the director spent a year with the Navy to figure out how to film inside mm-hmm. of those planes. Yeah, I saw that there was a lot yeah. of research and a lot of collaboration. There was. And they said, didn't write a note about this, but I remember seeing that they could film for up to 14, 16 hours a day and come away with only 40 seconds of usable footage. Isn't that crazy? It I mean, is. The, the money, the time investment, mm-hmm. just the perseverance. And they also constructed, because of how expensive it was to mm-hmm. use those planes, they constructed exact replicas for the ground so that the actors could practice right. before they go before up Before they went up. because And the clock starts running and the money starts spending. Because jumping ahead a little bit, renting, because basically you had to rent the uh, Super Hornets, those FA-18s, cost as much as $11,374 an hour. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Boy. Yeah, Yeah, super expensive. So to back up just a minute before we go to those super hornets, because they play such a big part in the movie, I've got quite a bit of information about them. But first, just a quick little note about the really high tech, super stealthy aircraft that they used in the opening sequence when they were doing that whole thing about the Mach 10. Mm -hmm. They actually got... Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works company to partner with Paramount Pictures to produce this physical mock-up. It was kind of like an adaptation of their aircraft that is right now, it's not finished. You know, it's still in the works. So they created this mock-up that even had the Lockheed logo on the pilot stick. And that's what they used for that Mm. sequence. So they had the collaboration from them. But as we've already said, the F-18s, which 
are the, called Super Hornets. So I'm going to refer to them as Super Hornets okay. throughout this. They were basically the star of the movie. Now, what I found in the research is that the Navy has fighter jets that are more advanced than those, but they were really wanting to be realistic and they had to nix some of their storyline if they wanted to try to use the more advanced jet because, for example, one that they were considering is only a one-seater and, and it couldn't do uh. some of the things that they wanted to, you know, to portray being accomplished sure. in their movie. So what they decided was that these super hornets were the way to go because they could do everything that they needed to show in the movie and also the people filming could have plenty of access because mm-hmm. the Navy has like 600 of those. Oh, okay. And you actually can really pull G's in the aircraft and they wanted that to mm-hmm. be, that was an important part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Very so important part. So it fit all the criteria and the Navy did allow Tom Cruise to use the super hornets for the Top Gun movie. But there were two catches. We've already said one, but they had to rent them because regulations call for filmmakers to have to reimburse the Pentagon for any aircraft unless they're basically already being used. Like if if it's kind of a naturally mm-hmm. happening in the course of the Navy work, okay, fine. But if it's not something that's already previously scheduled, like a training exercise or a flight that could be counted towards the pilot's required time at the controls, then basically this is extra stuff just for the movie and you have to pay. Whoa. And that's why it said they had to rent for as much as $11,374 an hour. The other rule was no one was allowed to touch the control Trolls, right. including Tom Cruise, right. who, of course, really wanted he really to do it. Wanted he was to do this. pushing for it hard. <laughs> now, of course, we all know he has had his pilot's license since 1994. He's really big about doing his own stunts, and he hates CGI. Like, he wanted everything to be yes. as realistic as it yes, could be. That's he said one he wouldn't do the movie unless... Yep, that's mm-hmm. exactly what I wrote down. It says, he said, I will not do this movie if it's a green screen. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that his flight school... Are you going to talk about his flight school he did? Yes, but go ahead. You can give us a... a a little preview. Yep. Well, Tom came up with like a three-month flight school yep. for his fellow actors, and it was a response to the failed attempt to film Top Gun up in the air mm. because everybody kept getting sick. Yeah. And so he came up with this. They start. He started them on smaller planes and graduated the kids up. Kids, I mean, you know, <laughs> young adults. He's only your seventy. I know. Ah, the kids. He he graduated them up so that they wouldn't puke and they would be able yes. to say their lines. And character playing Hangman said, you know, in some of those takes, he's still holding the bag of his own puke, but he <laughs> he got through it. And then he actually Hangman actually decided to get his pilot's license. Oh, cool. At the end of this, and when he decided to do it, there was a note from Tom Cruise. So I don't know how Tom Cruise is omnipresent and knows where all these kids are at all the, all times but it was a note that said like welcome to the skies oh yeah. I love that I know great information well I'm gonna come back to that in just a second but to finish this thought the Pentagon also would not allow him to touch the controls because they do have a regulation that bans non-military personnel from controlling a defense department asset other than small arms and training scenarios and on top of that it's a 70 million dollar aircraft so you can't just like let somebody like play with it and they (laughs) talked about how it would have been a pr nightmare if they had let this film use their aircraft and then somebody got hurt or they crashed it or you know and it also opens it up to will you let tom cruise do it right why why not us why not us yeah there's a lot of reasons to let tom cruise do it above somebody else but that just opens a door and you don't want to open the door no, I, I mean, no I, have, I support the Navy in this yeah. decision. I think Sorry, they Tom. went the right way. <laughs> so as we said, 
Tom Cruise had this very, very firm belief. Not only was he against CGI, but he just loved realism. And he felt like the actors playing pilots had to have experience flying in those fighter jets so that they wouldn't throw up, of course, but (laughs) also so that they could understand what it feels like. So that they could be realistic in the way that they were operating controls or just holding themselves. All of those things. And he said, again, you know, just keeping yourself together and and not getting sick is one thing, but just being able to deal with the strain of such intense gravitational forces, it's a big deal. And you can tell that's real. That's part Mm -hmm. of, we're going to bring it up later, but that's part of what made this film so amazing is the authenticity of it. Absolutely. Yes. Well, you've already explained about the training program, which I love. But another piece of it was that they also had to go through required training, and I'm sure this is from the Navy, they had to have required training on how to eject from the plane in an emergency and how to survive at sea before they were allowed to go up in these planes with Navy pilots flying them. Because this is what ultimately happened. They put the actors in the back seats. Mm -hmm. They had actual Navy pilots who were trained on these aircraft Mm -hmm. flying, and they had all of the cameras and all of the things back there with the actors Mm -hmm. so that... You know, of course, they're not doing any of the piloting themselves. They're not doing any of the actual control of the plane but they did have to sometimes set turn on and like kind of set up their own cameras yes and do their own touch-ups yes yeah Yeah. they they had to be trained in how to do all of that talk Mm -hmm. about the pressure of like acting and being in a plane with with all this gravitational you know all these gravitational forces that you have to deal with and you're also like oh here's where I'm supposed to adjust this camera (laughs) or you know let me turn to the left right (laughs) here I I, well I don't think they're turning any they're not choosing when to turn that plane is telling them when to turn yeah but yeah all of that they had to be technical they had to, i have a lot of admiration for those actors that me took this too. on and kudos to the filmmakers and the actors all of them because they all did such an amazing job there was very very little cgi used in that film mm. they pulled it off so another way that the military helped was by actually giving some input on the script. The Pentagon, this is one representative who had this quote, he said, a movie does not have to be a love letter to the military, but it does need to, quote, uphold the integrity of the military. They have a brand. They have a reputation. And so they will not support a film unless the script will be submitted to them Mm -hmm. so that they can review it and make Mm -hmm. sure that it's okay. Mm -hmm. And then in this case, they actually okayed these two fellas, Captain J.J. Yank Cummings and Commander Tim Sparky, (laughs) Charlie Boys, who worked with the film's screenwriter, Eric Singer, and the director, Joseph Kaczynski, for several months. And their job was to ensure that the film depicted the Navy accurately, positively, and professionally. Mm -hmm. Now, the one fella, the captain who goes, has the nickname of Yank, he was interviewed in this article. So I I have a couple of different quotes from him. So I'm going to focus on Yank just a little bit. But I found him interesting because he himself, he talks in this interview about how he was motivated to join the Navy and then later on to go to Aviation Officer Candidate School after he saw the original Top Gun Gun in 1986. I bet he is losing his mind getting to work on this film. Yeah, he sounded so excited. Mm -hmm. Um, But he shared that the ready room 
that he saw in Top Gun, the first one, Mm -hmm. was the actual ready room from his very first F-14 squadron. And a quote from him was, In 1995, I checked into the VF-24 Fighting Renegades. I walked into the ready room and said, This feels familiar. (laughs) It turned out that it was the debriefing room in Top Gun, which looked the same as when they filmed it in 1986. They had not changed a single thing. So now it's full circle. He's one of the advisors Mm -hmm. on the new Top Gun movie. And he shared that from June 2017 to February 2018, he was in close contact with the screenwriter, sometimes even daily. Uh Sometimes they would go line by line through the screenplay and talk about, you know, is this realistic or how might we change this? And he would sometimes give them ideas or bounce ideas around. He even said, quote, with the exception of a few minor plot line shifts, what we worked on is basically what made it to the big screen. So he had some input. He had some feedback. Now, a few examples of how he, as a Navy representative, had a little input or impact on the film. First of all, he had to tell the director that their original proposal for the final scene, that whole thing where Mav and Rooster have to escape that situation. I won't go into any more detail in case there's anyone who's not seen the movie. But he had to tell them what they originally planned was not realistic for what their jets could do. Yeah. And he had to help them work out a different idea. Another example, he fought really hard against the locker room scenes. He said they were very unrealistic. (laughs) There are no post-flight locker room interactions in naval aviation. But it was cute because he said finally the director and the screenwriter pulled him aside and they were like, hey, look, we cannot make this the most accurate yet boring fighter pilot movie in the history of film. We got to have some drama. Yeah. So he understood that he had to relax a little bit. (laughs) And as long as it kind of stayed true to the integrity of the Navy, he could go with it. Uh, Another example, he really had to focus in whenever they were using the Super Hornets, he would have to, to determine is this really something they could do? And if it wasn't, he would have to tell them so they could adjust it because they needed the Super Hornets to be very realistically portrayed and he was pleased with what they did. Okay. Finally, the military requested that there be no fraternization in the movie. That's the word they Mm use because apparently in the military, what that means is an inappropriate relationship between a senior and a junior officer. Isn't that what happened in the first Top Gun? No, I guess not because she was... She was she, a teacher. They they mentioned that. They, they didn't like it? They specifically made her a consultant, ah. not an actual officer in the Navy, to try to avoid that. Okay. And of course, you saw in the new movie, they totally avoided that. The romances that occurred were not... I wondered why they didn't do anything with Phoenix. And I was glad they didn't. I was glad she was just a member of the class and there was nobody fighting for her affection or anything like that. I I was glad to see that that was not anywhere a part Mm -hmm. of it. They just just had class together. I was going to mention this later when we talked about, you know, kind of did a little um, analysis of the movies. But since you brought it up, I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. That was one of the things I loved. The original Top Gun movie, even in the opening credits, or I guess, what would you call it? The opening scene where you see the word scroll and they mm-hmm. give you a little background mm-hmm. about Top Gun. It uses the word men. Mm. It does not even acknowledge females because women were really not a part of Top Gun at that time. And now, of course, they are. Right. And if you notice that same scene in the new movie when it, it opens, say it says women and men. Oh, it has good. both mentioned. And I love that they brought in this is not a male thing no this is this is anybody can do this yes and so I felt that it was very important that they had a female character and she was strong and she was able because that's realistic it was yeah Yeah. so before we talk about the real Top Gun flight school how about we take a short break let's do it it's time for our August giveaway 
For a chance to win your very own Scandal Water t-shirt, simply visit our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page and share the post labeled August Giveaway. The winner will be announced on August 31st. Cheers! And we are back to talk about the actual Top Gun flight school. It was the coolest thing, Ashley. Hmm. I looked this up. There is actually, I guess you would call pages or articles about Top Gun on the Department of Defense website. Really? Yes. And it's fascinating. Okay. So go check that out, everybody. Okay. <laughs> it was like including pictures of the different fighter jets. Because if you're wondering that, you know, what's the difference and how they've changed over the years, mm-hmm. you can see pictures. I mean, it was, it's great. So anybody who's really interested in this topic, check out the Department of Defense website. And of course, we'll have the link on our show notes. Cool. A few fast facts before we start talking about the history of the school. First of all, fewer than 5% of Navy fighter pilots actually get to teach at Top Gun. 90 to 95% of the students who attend Top Gun as students do pass. And according to one officer, it's because the staff sees it as their job to graduate those students, not to fail them. You want these people, the best of the best, Mm -hmm. to pass and Mm -hmm. then to go on and take their knowledge to other people. Okay. Top Gun averages about 35 instructors on the staff at any one time. That includes strike fighter aircrew, airborne intercept controllers, and an intelligence officer. Most of these instructors spend about three years on the staff. Can Just you kind three of, years. You kind of rotate in and out. Okay. I guess it keeps from burnout. And one last fast fact before we kind of get into the actual timeline. The school was founded at Naval Air Station Miramar in San Diego, but it moved in 1996 to Naval Air Station Fallon in Nevada mm. to be integrated into what is now known as the Naval Aviation War Fighting Development Center. And one of the points they made was this change was necessary because as these aircraft became more Bigger. technologically advanced. They needed more airspace and they needed more air to surface range because in the beginning it was a lot of just dogfighting. Oh. And they, so they had to go to a new space that would allow for that, a new training range, I guess you would call it, mm-hmm. that, that provided what they needed. So let's talk about how it actually all started. It was called the Navy's Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Course. <laughs> And, That's a mouthful. Right? And of course, everybody calls it Top Gun. And it has a reputation for producing the best fighter pilots in the world. This school has been around since 1969. And it began in a very humble way. It became necessary because what they found out was that during the Vietnam War, fighter pilots and air crew were dying at, this is a quote from a Navy commander named Dustin Perverell, who said they were dying at an alarming rate. Despite the fact that they had advanced technology, the Navy was losing a lot of airplanes and more importantly, a lot of air crew. And so because they were experiencing what they consider to be these unacceptable combat losses, they assigned this man, Navy Captain Frank Alt, to investigate the problem. And his report, which came to be known as the Alt Report, highlighted a lot of performance deficiencies and other root causes. And one of the things that this report said was they needed an advanced course to teach fighter tactics. So this is what resulted in the Navy Fighter Weapons School, which was again established at Miramar in 1969 and was originally in a trailer in the parking lot. What? 
Yes. So they nicknamed it Top Gun, and they I don't know if it was they were joking or not, but they said it might have been partly because it was really hard to say that full name. Yeah. <laughs> and supposedly the nickname was created by the Tactical Department of Fighter Squadron 21 when that school first started up. They even made a Top Gun sign for the trailer, and then the name stuck. Aw. The mission of the school was, and to this day it still is, to train air crew in all aspects of aerial combat to be carried out with the utmost professionalism. They said in the beginning, students were trained over the course of four weeks on an F-4 Phantom II aircraft to get better at one-on-one aerial combat. Four weeks does not feel like enough time. And it's way longer (laughs) now. Yeah. And they were really focusing on dogfighting. And they said they had results. This was a quote, again, from that same commander. When Top Gun graduates began to go back to the fleet in the early 1970s and the air war started back up, the Navy's kill ratio jumped. Top Gun worked. It validated that the training, the subject matter expertise, and most importantly, the professionalism that it produced worked in combat and it produced results. So what happens is, Mm -hmm. as students pass the Top Gun class, most go back to the fleet's weapon schools. Now, some do get invited later to come back and become elite instructors, uh but a lot of the idea is the students are expected to go out and teach others what they have learned. They they are supposed to take it to the rest of their fleet so that everybody is like spreading the expertise. It's kind of like a way of, of really kind of... Like team leaders. Yeah. I have one more quote from that same... Commander, their job is to make sure that top to bottom, CO all the way down to the brand new air crew are trained in the latest tactics developed by Top Gun. The payback that the fleet gets from a Top Gun graduate isn't just an individual investment. It's a community investment, Mm. a Navy investment. Mm -hmm. So that's a difference, I think, because in the movie, you think it's like, we're just going to train these These few people, these people, Mm -hmm. and they're going to go be stars. Mm -hmm. But the idea is really about teaching others. They said that Top Gun has been so successful successful, so effective, and has such a great reputation that it's become a model for other military units. And just to kind of go back to what we said a second ago, two misconceptions, in addition to the one that we said about it not being an individual thing, as you might think from the movie, Mm -hmm. two other misconceptions. The students at the real Top Gun, they are not cocky. Really? Oh, no, no, no. They made it. This is on the Department of Defense website. One of their little articles, it has a a little fact that talks about, no, there's not arrogance here. There's not cockiness here. Although they admitted there is competitiveness. Okay. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. They said they're more, this is a quote, they're studious air nerds who toil away for hours in the classroom and participate in intense training flights at Naval Air Station Fallon in Nevada, the site of the actual Top Gun school. The school looks for three personality traits in every student and instructor credibility, approachability, and humility. So they're all like Bob. <laughs> they are. They're, <laughs> they're all, all Bob. They're all Bob. We loved Bob. We did. <laughs> One other misconception in Top Gun, both of the movies, immediately after graduating, they get sent off on these missions. Mm-hmm. They said that that's very, very rare. Most of the time, it's, again, that train the trainer idea. You know, they go off to train other people. And, you know, obviously they do use what their expertise that comes up, but it's not as though you immediately go off into a mission. Okay. Okay, now, here's what I I thought was even more, I think, interesting than what I just shared. On the same Department of Defense website, there was a whole article by a woman named Katie Lang, who was talking specifically about the instructor part. Okay. Yeah. She said, unlike the movies, which focus in on the students, she learned that Top Gun isn't so much about the students. It's about the instructors who train relentlessly, study hard, and exude professionalism so the Navy can 
keep its edge. That's a quote from her in her article. And she said that as the technology in the newer jets grew more complicated, they needed more knowledge to understand and to use it. Mm -hmm. So they said in the late 2000s, as you were already kind of foreshadowing, the classes had to expand. By the 2000s, it was up to nine weeks. They had to expand it now to 13 weeks. That and feels they, better. Yeah. They said <laughs> the instructors work just as hard or harder than the students. What they do is they assign each instructor to become an expert in one specific subject. You don't get to pick. Oh. They tell you what you're going to become an expert in. And they said that you have to have a level of knowledge that's equivalent to the engineers that build the airplanes and build the weapon systems. No wonder they only last three years. It would be intense burnout. Oh my gosh. Like as I was reading about this, I was blown away. It said that sometimes what you're assigned depends not on like your expertise or what you're interested in. It's timing. There's oh. a, there's somebody about to rotate out. Uh-huh. So, so they like, need you. They need you to fill that gap. Mm-hmm. So you get to do this subject matter. Now, in order to be this instructor, it's almost like a process with three steps. First, there's the research. You have to research like crazy to start building your expertise. They said a standard day for a Top Gun instructor is anywhere from 12 to 16 hours because you're not only flying the airplanes, Uh you're studying, you're teaching, and you're answering emails from around the fleet because you've got all these people who are emailing you as the expert to weigh in on things or to give them advice. So you're researching like crazy. That would be a good job for you. You like researching. <laughs> I do like researching. Then they said the second step is there's a murder board phase. What? Yeah, I murder know. Murder board. <laughs> did you ever watch that show? Yes, I, did. <laughs> I love that. I don't remember the name of the TV uh, show, but it was trial, funny. Trial and error. Okay. Yeah. Trial and error, I believe. Yes, but the murder board. board. Murder, murder board. board. So in this case, the murder board phase is where you have to go through this incredibly rigorous process to create and deliver a presentation to try to teach, you know, that content that you've been assigned. And everybody is scrutinizing it, critiquing it, ripping it apart until you finally get approval. It made me think of getting a, you know, having to defend your doctorate or they talked about maybe almost like a pre-boards process. Okay. It said it can sometimes take up to a year until the entire staff will approve approve your murder board and only when you receive your official approval from everybody are you allowed to teach that content to top gun classes and possibly in other situations also so it's very rigorously filtered you know and screened (laughs) and then finally a third piece of being an instructor is once you do have all this expertise they call on you for some other responsibilities you might be called on to be an advisor like let's say that a mission's coming up and they think that you could offer some insights Mm -hmm. or some advice Mm -hmm. you might get called up for that or you know you, you might be asked they're developing a new weapon they need some input from somebody who knows this really well so you're basically almost an advisor that's cool though Uh uh-huh for sure this one top gun training officer named jimmy gibbons had a quote that i thought was pretty cool he said i got really lucky to stand with a bunch of individuals who are uncommon the top gun staff is the glory that cannot be replicated anywhere in the department of defense we have a unique situation and it's been an honor oh yeah. So I thought that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And to kind of pull this together, you know, we've we've talked a lot about the new movie and then we've went into kind of the history of the actual Top Gun flight school. And so I thought this quote from Yank, remember that advisor yes. from the Navy who, who helped with the movie? He said that he really hopes that people will take away from the movie, not just the fun or the flashy parts, but something that he said he thought was more important. So here's a quote from Yank. I hope folks recognize 
recognize that a lot of folks who are not getting paid a lot of money are doing some very dangerous stuff on behalf of our nation, Mm -hmm. and they'll never know it. It's behind the scenes. Right now, right now, there are people underway and about to make a night landing on an aircraft carrier somewhere around the world in bad weather and rough seas, and they will do that professionally and safely on behalf of our nation and our way of life. So I hope folks recognize that. And then I hope that they want to come and do it. Mm. So I thought that was a really cool way to kind of end this piece before we move into our armchair. Okay. Armchair psychologist. We've already previewed the armchair. We both have said how much we love the Mm -hmm. movie. We've both acknowledged that we think it was a very successful sequel. Mm -hmm. So why? What did they do right? One of the main things that they did correctly is they made the heart of the story, the relationship between Rooster and Mm -hmm. Maverick. But really, it was still about the relationship between Maverick and Goose. Mm -hmm. I think it was, again, we talked about it being a a perfect sequel because this incident that happened, Goose's death, has literally haunted Maverick for, what'd you say, 36 years now? Mm -hmm. It's been 36 years. They also gave Maverick this impossible choice because, of course, it's going to be Rooster that signs up for this mission that is going to kill him. So they think. They think whoever gets picked for this mission is not going to come out of it alive. Right. And so Maverick is now faced with feeling like he's the reason that Goose died. Even Mm -hmm. though he's not, he was cleared. Mm -hmm. He promised Carol, I think that was her name, Goose's wife, I will not let your son join. It killed the dad. It Mm -hmm. killed my best friend, your husband. And he promised her on her deathbed. Yeah. And when Penny says, why don't you just tell him that? He says, he already resents me. Why should he resent his mother too? Mm -hmm. So it put him in this position of, you see that he has been trying to shape Rooster's life and trying to honor Goose and keep this promise to this family. So it puts him in this impossible position. And he says, and it's one of the most beautiful scenes with him and Iceman where he actually gets really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And he says, if I put him on this mission, he may never come back. And if I don't put him on this mission, he'll never forgive me. Yeah. And that's the, uh, that is the beating heart of this story is what am I going to do with my best friend's son? How am I going to reconcile this? To me, that's why it appealed to me is this undercurrent story of how do I make this better? And, and what we find out is that the reason Rooster is mad at him is he pulled his papers and and prevented him from being able to get, but didn't tell him why. Didn't say your mother, I promised your mom, which would have made him mad, but he maybe could have understood. He didn't tell him. He just did it. It's so I love when we talk about things because your perspective is always like a little different, Mm -hmm. but we had similar thinking. I saw the same mirroring of the theme of father son Mm -hmm. relationships because Mm -hmm. in the original movie, Tom Cruise was living with the ghost of his father disappearing on him. That's right. And he was like, they even comment about how he felt like he had something to prove because of that whole loss of his dad. And then he tells Goose, You're the only family I have. Yeah. And then we come back and now he's like he feels like he's the father figure to rooster Mm -hmm. although rooster is fighting it and is resentful Mm -hmm. and so he's got that father protectiveness and all the things that you just described Mm -hmm. and then again we've we're going to spoiler all over the place here but that was what made it so incredibly satisfying at the end i felt like it was so purposeful that with father son and family in general Mm -hmm. being such an important part of both movies they made that decision at the end you have tom cruise working on this plane rooster comes up and it's just like this father son experience Mm -hmm. tom cruise is kind of like pointing to rooster like here's how to work on it Mm -hmm. and then you literally have him see the daughter 
first because they, they made the point in fact somebody made a cruel comment earlier that said might have, I can't remember who but something about well you have no family you know what nobody's going to care if you don't come back from oh. a mission you oh, know yeah. so now he sees the daughter first mm-hmm. and then he sees Penny and it was just this perfect little picture of this he, is my family he is now reconciled his mm-hmm. father-son relationship mm-hmm. he now has a full complete family what he's wanted all this time that's so nice yeah i love when he rescues rooster and he runs at him (laughs) in the snow and you think he's gonna be happy and he pushes him down he's like what he said what were you thinking and then rooster says you told me not to think and he's like oh well (laughs) i'm glad to see you that (laughs) was beautiful that was the best thing it was so cute when i started to think about one of the you know what are some of the reasons why i feel like the sequel was so successful and of course we've already named it the fact that in so many ways it mirrored the original it took the best parts of the original Mm -hmm. while also making a point to go in new directions so it wasn't just like a repeat Mm -hmm. so I was thinking about the music and how the music was so important I ran across an interview that Kenny Loggins gave where he talked about meeting Tom Cruise on Jimmy Kimmel Live about six years ago when at that point he felt sure that the the sequel was going to be made Mm -hmm. and Kenny Loggins said that he talked to, to Tom and he asked him so tell me Is Danger Zone in or out? And Tom Cruise replied, it wouldn't be Top Gun without Danger Zone. And in fact, Kenny Loggins actually recorded a new version and then they decided not to use it. They wanted the exact one? Because Tom Cruise wanted to conjure up the original version, the original feeling. Mm. So... They did use that song. In fact, they mirrored the entire they opening. Did. They did. And it was so intentional because the director, Joseph Kaczynski, told Entertainment Weekly, quote, I wanted that first few minutes to just tell you this is a Top Gun movie. Yeah. We love it as much as you do. Yeah. From there, our story goes in a very different direction. But I wanted the first few minutes to let the audience know, don't worry, we love it too. This is going to be a Top Gun movie. And Kirk had told me that when that song played and it was that opening in the Mm -hmm. sequel, he got goosebumps. That it, like, it really took him there. So here's what I'm leading to is as I was looking at this music, I went to, so why didn't they use Take My Breath Away? Oh, yeah. And I found that that was purposeful too. They said that Take My Breath Away was a beautiful song. It was so popular, but it was connected to the relationship between Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis. So this is from the director. He said, quote, so for Maverick and Penny, we needed something new. Lady Gaga wrote this song for us that from the first time I heard it, I was like, well, this is just a classic song. It's Mm -hmm. got a great melody. And when Hans Zimmer heard it, he's a composer, he was like, I can build the love theme of the movie off this. That's why you see Lady Gaga has a credit with Hans and Harold Faltermeyer at the beginning. Yeah, because they said the song became the melody for the love theme and was used kind of in in the background throughout the film. Uh Now, this is the part that got me, Ashley. I know I've kind of taken a long time leading to it. But then the producer added a comment where he said, it was important to make Lady Gaga's song this running thread throughout this movie because it wasn't necessarily a love song, meaning a love song for their relationship. He said this movie was a love letter to aviation. Mm. This is what the film is about. And that's when I was like, this is why the sequel is so beautiful. Like in the 
first one you were a lot about, you know, yeah. Kelly McGillis yes. and Tom Cruise yes. and the romance. Yes. This one was a love story to top the original Top Gun, mm-hmm. and it was a love story to to flying to, a to love like, letter to flying. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, that. And I thought he nailed it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I honestly rewatching it, I thought that the romance between Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise took away from the story. I wanted to see less of that, and I wanted to see more of the other, which is what they did right again in this Mm -hmm. one is Penny was in the background and she was an important part of his life but she wasn't the focus I liked that the focus was the relationship between him and Rooster and what he was the family feeling there I like that a lot yeah I did too did you notice that when they introduced Penny's character that a David Bowie song was on on the jukebox I did not notice that it was that was a little nod a fun little side note just like the 1986 movie caused an increase in the sale of sunglasses (laughs) they said that it went up the Ray-Ban Aviator Classic sunglasses. Their sales went up 40% in the months after the film's release. They are seeing an upswing in sunglasses again. In How fact- about Hawaiian shirts? Because <laughs> when we went to my friend's graduation party, he he's he's joining the military, but he had on his little white tank top and Hawaiian shirt, and he's growing his little mustache. <laughs> said, I didn't know I was coming to Rooster's graduation party. I love that. He said, I've seen that movie like twice. Yes. So it's really influencing. It is. My son Camden, he, his friends, you know, are of course his age. One of his friends has an older brother who's like, I don't know, 29. And they were all teasing him because the day after he saw the movie, he went out and bought new sunglasses. <laughs> the day after. You got to look cool. One last thing that I want to throw out here that I thought they did really well was including Val Kilmer. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That just didn't That win. scene. Yes, yeah. that's and that scene, can I just say, I thought that was the most vulnerable, authentic acting from Tom Cruise that I have seen possibly ever. And I haven't seen every Tom Cruise movie, so I can't I can't make that blanket statement from but from the ones I have seen, I have an empathy response when mm-hmm. it feels authentic, yes. when someone's emotion is authentic. And seeing him cry on screen, I started getting teary-eyed, which meant that whatever he was tapping into, he was tapping into authentic emotion in that scene with Iceman. The relationship that the two of them had, it was, and then the little jokey way to end it, like which one of us is a better pilot. He's like, this was such a good moment. Why are we ruining this? It was perfect. It was very perfect. perfect. I had not realized that Val Kilmer was struggling with... Um, cancer. Yeah. So I, I looked it up and he went public with his diagnosis in 2017. And in addition to undergoing chemotherapy and radiation treatments, he also had to have a tracheostomy, which makes it difficult to speak. I don't think he can speak. He did just a tiny bit in the movie. He said, No, they used AI. Oh. Yeah, it was not his voice. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Mm -hmm. Well, in a 2021 documentary, Val Kilmer did reveal he also has to use a feeding tube. And Mm -hmm. he had a quote that said, I can't speak without plugging this hole in my throat. You have to make a choice to breathe or to eat. Mm -hmm. So about Tom having Val Kilmer do this scene in the new Top Gun Maverick movie. Here is what Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer, told Hollywood Reporter in 2022. Quote, Tom said, I'm not making this movie without Val. And then he went on to say, this is from Jerry's perspective, when we filmed it, it was a very emotional day. Having Val there and seeing him work with Tom after 35 years. Val's daughter Mercedes was on the set that day. She said, I saw it live and it was extraordinary. 
It means a lot to my dad as he's very proud of that film. Mm -hmm. This is what he loves to do. It was trippy and very special for my dad to be on set with all his friends who Mm -hmm. made this movie when they were my age. And then Tom Cruise at some point told people that it was lovely to work with his former co-star again. Mm -hmm. And I like that they ended the original Top Gun with them being friends. And that Val Kilmer was, he was right in a lot of the original. He said, you're not safe. You know, he didn't dislike him because he was a competitor. He disliked him because he wasn't being safe. He wasn't doing things the proper way. Mm -hmm. And then they resolved their differences and it shows that they became friends and that he was kind of his protector. He was. Throughout his career. And then it was interesting how Hangman was kind of a combination of... Yes, the two of them. Of the two of them. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what I saw. I found a, a YouTube video called All the Callbacks from Screen Rant. Oh, And one of the things they said was Hangman was a stand-in for the younger Maverick. But then in the end, you know, when Maverick saves Iceman, Mm -hmm. Hangman now saved Maverick. So that was kind of that circular moment. So in that Screen Rant video, Mm -hmm. I took some notes. So I'm going to run down my little notebook for you. Ed Harris sends him to Top Gun, which is what happens in the previous show where that Mm -hmm. other instructor sends him to Top Gun. Something I did not take a note on, but I thought this was interesting. I can't remember where I saw it. But they said those big opening sequences that we used to see in movies where it would be something like this, where there's these big, not not a lot's really happening contained into the plot, but you're just seeing random B-roll where you're seeing the stuff happening. Mm -hmm. A lot of that had to do with unions and contracts, and you Mm -hmm. had to show us the names before the film started. Oh, really? I didn't know that. No, never heard that. Yeah, I didn't take good enough notes on it, but that's something to look into. It's very interesting. I always wondered why we have these big sequences of all the credits ahead of time and not really a lot of movie happening. And back then, it was because of rules. Huh, interesting. So they mentioned that in the first film, Maverick had shot down three enemy aircraft. And in the current film, he shot down two more, which is why he's referred to, which gives us five, Mm -hmm. which is why Phoenix, I think it was Phoenix, refers to him as an ace. Right, I heard that. And I just thought this was cute. They steal a Tomcat F-14, which is the... That was so intentional. Yeah. Yes, that was satisfying yeah. for the viewers for sure. Yeah, and it's called Tomcat. Tom- <laughs> oh, the fact that it's a Tomcat. Yeah. The same leather jacket, same motorcycle. And I think they said that the maybe the last plane that him and Penny fly in is actually Tom's. I heard that too. Now, I didn't see it in research, but I've heard that. I heard can that. I Can I interject yeah. for just a second about that same leather jacket? And they recreated like the scene where he's kind of like racing yeah. the plane. The one thing, the one criticism that I have of this movie, I wish they'd put a helmet on him. Oh, I know. I I mean, I know that's a silly thing and I sound like a mom, but with a billion dollars in the type of viewership that you have, that I think it would have been a good thing just to put on a helmet. Because in 86, eh, you didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. But you do today. You do today. But we do know Tom is an adrenaline junkie. He probably thought, Yes, that's true. I don't need a helmet because I won't crash. The kids put on a helmet. Volleyball football scene. Yes, for sure. Yep. And the ladies. I was glad to see the ladies participating in the football scene too. Mm -hmm. Buzzing the tower. Yes. Of course he has to buzz the tower. And him and Rooster buzz the tower at the end. Mm -hmm. And what was up with John Hamm? I just wanted to go, dude. Have some ice cream. Chill out. Well, you have to have that antagonist he because he was. kept pushing things. He, you know? he was just he was just angry. Um, the flashbacks. They actually used flashbacks from yes. the first film. They said we they physically used the flashbacks. And they had the photo of Iceman and Maverick and then Rooster and Maverick. And they made the funny point like, there must just be a photographer just following Maverick around <laughs> that, that just captures these moments of him with his friends. And did you put in there that they had Rooster recreate the whole piano scene? Yeah. 
playing. They didn't say that, but yes. Oh, that was huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that went with the flashback. You saw Anthony Mm -hmm. Edwards as Goose doing that scene, and here's his son, and it was just such a mirror image, and it just, it it got you. And then here's Maverick watching through that window. Yeah. It was a good scene. It It just showed you that there is definitely tension there. And I liked how Penny picked up on it, too. Yes. Yes. She got it. Um, Speaking of Penny, Mm -hmm. I loved that she was age appropriate for Tom Mm -hmm. Cruise. I will say in the first one, I thought that Kelly McGillis's character looked actually looked too old. For Tom Cruise. And she was older than him. She was older, but not not by much. And it's not that that bothers me. It just didn't, they didn't seem to look right together. They didn't look like a couple that would last past the end of the movie. But with Penny, she was cool. Her running that boat. Oh, yeah, they made her a strong woman. Yes, and she could handle that boat. And she was very independent and really, it wasn't a need thing, but he kind of was her perfect companion. And you know, you talked earlier about a great scene from Tom Cruise. I thought it was powerful that moment where he goes out the window and and he he lands and then he faces off with that daughter. (sighs) The look between them, I was impressed with her acting as well, but Mm -hmm. I thought it was just such a really strong moment. Mm And, and then when he comes back later and says, I'll never leave you by choice. I mean, there was just, there, they had so much emotion, because I so think much what the feeling. girl said to him, she said, just don't break her heart Yes, again. she did. That's right. And she his did. face was kind of like, oh, it mm-hmm. really hit him. I think that his character did a lot of growing up yep. in those ensuing 30 years. And I liked the person that he became. I said this to Kirk. That's another thing. You've kind of brought it to my mind. They resolved everything. Mm-hmm. They resolved his father issues they resolved his lack of a family issues they resolved his I think rebelling and kind of being a wild card because he was almost afraid Mm -hmm. to to commit to things and to to go with it Mm -hmm. and so as you said he he finally he kind of grew up and everything came together Mm -hmm. so beautifully and you got this sense that this man is finally going to be happy he's not going to have that ghost chasing him anymore or the ghosts yeah because now he had more than one and I know that they're probably going to want to make another one but I don't know what else you could say this just seemed like the perfect completion to the story. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they could do another great film if they wanted to, if they had the right story. But that kind of ties into one of the things I read over and over is why now? Why did mm-hmm. you want to do it now? And Tom Cruise was saying that he wanted it to be the ability to do it correctly. Yes. To do the authentic up in the air, no CGI. And he wanted it to be the right story. Mm-hmm. So I think with that motivation, we know that, I guess we can trust Tom Cruise to not just jump into another money grab. He's going to take the time because this one took years and months and he waited. He gambled and said, we're not releasing it on streaming. We're going to wait the years that we have to wait in order to release it to the theaters. So I guess we'll just leave it in his very, very capable hands. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, did I love this movie? It was great. One of my very, very favorite scenes early on is when he crashes after he goes too far you know, oh, mock yes. for, and he ends up in that diner <laughs> yeah, and that little so kid good. is eating cereal. And he says, <laughs> as soon as he says to the kid, where am I? And the kid goes, earth. I thought that was so perfect. I just kudos to you, child actor. That was, uh, that was just the perfect delivery of I that line. It's it. so funny. <laughs> it's a 10 out of 10 recommend from us. That's right. So I guess when it comes to who we're going to cheers, we have to obviously include Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. I would say all the people responsible for that movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just 
beautiful and masterful. Let's even let's let's give a cheers to the Navy for their sure. cooperation. And it's a big glass of cheers. <laughs> and to all those actual yeah. fighter pilots out there yeah. who are doing the work. The one percent. Yeah. Cheers to you. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.